Father, we thank you for your word to us in Scripture. We thank you for your word made flesh in Jesus. Show us more of Jesus today, we pray. Amen. Hopefully with the children just now, we've got a little bit of a sense of this letter to the... Hopefully with the children just now, we've got a little bit of a sense of this letter to the Galatians already. A letter by the Apostle Paul um, to the churches in the area of Galatia. It was a large region. Um, It was most likely that the churches that Paul established on his first mission trip, recorded in um, Acts 13 to 14 in uh, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Um, This letter is thought to be one of, if not the first, of the biblical letters, and probably one of the first bits of the New Testament uh, written down uh, years, if not decades, before the Gospels were um, put down on paper. And we've seen already that it's a different kind of letter. It's not the sort of letter that Paul usually wrote, even to churches with big problems, like the Corinthian church. It's not the sort of letter that anyone usually wrote in the first century Middle Eastern world. It's a genre-breaking. I don't know what the um, email culture is like, in your workplace, for those of us who work. Uh, But for me, with with a former boss in the last place I worked, I always knew he wasn't very happy with me uh, if he he dropped the hi or the dear at the start of the email, and it was just Matt, comma, and I knew that was going to be an unpleasant email to read. And we've seen that this letter is written in strong terms. It's written in strong terms because it is written to a church that is in danger a church that is in danger of giving up on the gospel. But maybe we come to it, and that just doesn't really feel like us. I mean, giving up on the gospel? Of course I'm not going to do that. Of course we're not, not going to do that. I mean, it's not, it's not hard to remember that Jesus died on the cross and came back to life. It, it's not like you can forget that Jesus died for you, like you might have forgotten how to do the quadratic equations that you learnt in A-level maths at school. It's not like you can give up on the gospel, like you might give up on on the cycle or jog to work and just get the bus instead. Maybe it just feels a bit hard to relate to, this idea of, of giving up on the gospel. But I don't think God intends this as a museum piece. I don't think we're supposed to just gawk through the glass at at these foolish early Christians and wonder how they could get it all so wrong. I think if there was a chance that they could give up their faith, then there must be a chance that we could give up our faith too. And so I think we need to come to this letter humbly, ready to listen, ready to see our hearts exposed. We'll um, look at this first 10 verses in two sections. Uh, The first, verses 1 to 5, the gospel you heard. Paul reminds them of the gospel they heard in verses 1 to 5. Um, Although Paul's following a kind of well-established genre, an ancient set letter-writing formula, from the word go, Paul is dripping the gospel into this letter. From the very first verse, He's reminding them, he begins with himself. Look down with me at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, 
but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul tells the church that he writes as an apostle. Well, obviously, perhaps we think, we know this. I'm sure they did too. Um, The word apostle means chosen or sent one. Uh, John Stott uh, puts it well. He says it means personally chosen, called and commissioned by Jesus Christ and authorized to teach in his name. So this letter comes from someone sent by Jesus with this message. Paul reminds them in his opening words. As the Galatian Christians weigh up the message they read here with what they've been hearing elsewhere. They are not weighing one human message against another, uh, one person's five-star review against another person's two-star review. They're weighing a message from God against a message just from other fallen human beings. The scales are incredibly unbalanced. Paul is sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And Paul is not on his own. He's he's not one deluded man stood on his own on a soapbox yelling at the passing crowds. Verse 2, he writes from all the brothers and sisters with him. There is a great flock of God's new people standing with Paul and the apostles in the truth of this message. Paul does not speak alone. And this message comes from the one uh, who sent him, Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Slipping the gospel message in already. Remember, says Paul, that stunning, world-upending, never-to-be-repeated moment in history where a buried corpse was reanimated. Remember that ordinary carpenter bloke who turned out to be the eternal son of God the Father, the centuries-awaited Christ, the Messiah. That's the Jesus who sent me, says Paul. That's the Jesus that this is all about. Don't forget. And then um, in verse 3 and 4, Paul gets even more carried away uh, with the grace and peace section of the letter. It's like he can't hold himself in. He writes, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember the rescue mission, Paul says. Remember that that is what this is. That is what this glorious story that you've reorganized your life around is all about. It's the message of a rescue mission. As we were saying with the children, the verb Paul uses for rescue in verse 4, it's a dramatic one. It's the same one that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 verse 29 to describe gouging out, tearing out your right eye if it's causing you to sin. And the same word is used at multiple times in Acts to describe dramatic interventions by God to deliver his servants. The Father and the Son put their heads together in eternity and they hatched a plot that would result in God the Son 
taking on skin and bones and coming incognito into the world he created and getting killed with the lowest of the low and then rising to rule for all eternity. It's a rescue mission centered upon the most extraordinary act of sacrifice, God's giving of himself for our sins, that we might be rescued. Rescued from the present evil age, verse 4, given freedom, a way out, an escape from the sin, the suffering, the evil, the mess. Don't we long to be rescued from this present evil age? And the Son did it all according to the will of the Father and for his glory. What a mission. What a rescue mission. Anna led us in prayer just now for the tragic events with the earthquake in Morocco. And I'm sure over the week, days and weeks to come, we will hear some extraordinary rescue stories of people saved from the brink of death. Already, just, just a brief one I saw on the BBC of a woman whose house was flattened by the earthquake, rescued by her neighbours who despite their fears, heard her screams and her cries and came to save her. This, Paul reminds the Galatian churches, this is the gospel, the story of a rescue mission. But that's probably not how we tend to think about our faith. For most of us, for most of the time, I suspect, as a rescue mission, We've got, got lots, of, um, lots of Christianese that we speak in, words, wonderful words used in the Bible or, or used by theologians that tell us what our faith is, but perhaps also stand a little bit removed from real life and can end up just feeling a little bit abstract or a bit, a bit too familiar. They, they lack the viscerality of some of the Bible's rescue imagery. Because we don't imagine them, we don't see or think of the picture anymore. We rarely use them in a context other than uh, theology. Words like redemption, salvation, atonement, gospel, wonderful words which contain wonderful truths. But they're picture words too. There's something to imagine, something to see, something to feel, not just something to know. And the Bible is full of images, of pictures, of these truths. Uh, Think of Isaac lying on the table, about to be slaughtered by his dad. Think about the Israelite families huddled around their plates of roast lamb that midnight in Egypt. Think of Jonah lying in the belly of the fish. Think of tongues of fire all around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Bible is full of images, pictures, and stories of our familiar salvation words. Let's read the Old Testament and discover them. Perhaps for some of us, listening to Christian music, admiring Christian art, reading Christian books, watching Christian TV, a little bit more, things that will help us to imagine. I know some of us already do that far more than I do. We must see our salvation that we might better understand and hold on to it. Let's not let phrases like grace and peace just trip off our tongues, a bit too familiar, a bit too easy to say. 
and God's grace is the source of our salvation. It is God's utterly unmerited kindness to us. And God's peace is the nature of our salvation, what Christ died to bring, harmony for God's enemies with him. And let's think of our faith, not first and foremost as what we do on a Sunday, the kind of people we are or try to be, the things we do, the creeds, doctrines, statements of faith, stuff that we believe, or good or true, important, but the heart is a divine act of God's rescue of a bunch of helpless, unworthy sinners. So we can grow cold towards what Christ has done for us. I think because we, we fail to think about it in a biblical way, we let it become abstract, academic, but also probably the idea of rescue isn't how we tend to see ourselves. We maybe don't have our main mental image of ourselves as people who are drowning in the waves, who grabbed for the rubber ring that Jesus threw out to us. That, that's in the mix somewhere, that image. But it's perhaps not what's at the forefront of, a, of who we think we are. And that may well be because we have other biblical identities that we rightly treasure. As we'll see later on in Galatians, we are children. We're heirs. As we see in John, we're friends of Jesus. We're born again. We're new creations. But, but it may be for less good reasons, perhaps. It may, it may be because we have other theological labels, many of which are good and that matter. We're evangelical. We're, we're reformed. We're, we're Baptists. We're Congregationalists, we're independent church men and women, we're complementarians. Some of us might see ourselves as charismatics, as spiritual, as social activists, as young earth creationists, as theologians, the list goes on. Or maybe more personal labels linked to roles that we've had now or in the past. I'm a, miss, I'm, I'm a pastor, you might be a missionary or an evangelist, you might see ourselves as a Bible teacher, as a Christian worker for a Christian charity. Or we might see ourselves primarily through other right, good, and true identities that we have in life. A mother, a father, a wife, a husband, a son, a daughter, a shoulder to cry on, an NHS worker, a counsellor, a teacher, a socialist, a liberal, a conservative, whatever it may be. But we are also rescued We have some asylum seekers in our midst, all of us, like refugees, asylum seekers, pulled out of the English Channel moments before we drowned. We're rescued people. Don't let that fall too far down your list of, uh, of identities, of who you think of yourself as being, says Paul. Think about it. Pray about it. Write it on notes around your house. Talk about it with Christian brothers and sisters. Don't, don't be a pastor, a Christian worker, a, a warrior for justice, more than you're a rescued sinner. What does that look like for me? You can um, let me know what you think after the service. I, I think it means that my personal quiet time has to be tops. As someone who works in ministry, I, I can't let it get squeezed because I've got too much work to do. And I can't let my personal quiet time become work. Maybe studying passages, I, I know I'm going to teach, and actually it's a subtle way of increasing my prep time. It has to be unrelated, my time with God. Because first and foremost, I'm a rescued sinner, not a pastor, 
I think it needs to impact my prayer life more than it does as well. I need to get better at coming before God and admitting who I actually am. Not someone who's trying really hard, who's doing their best, who thinks they're doing a pretty good job, all things considered, who's finding things a bit tough. But God have mercy on me, a sinner. If you don't want to give up on the gospel, says Paul, then remember that you are rescued. So from the word go, we've seen that the letter drips with the gospel that they have heard. Uh, Secondly, we'll see in verses 6 to 10, the danger of deserting that gospel. The danger of deserting it. Look down with me at verse 6. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Paul does not hold back. His shock, his abhorrence leap off the page through the words he chooses, astonished, so quickly deserting, no gospel at all. What lies at the heart of his accusation it seems to be desertion. They're deserting, that they're turning their backs, they're changing allegiance. And notice what it is that they are deserting. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. Because to turn your back on God's gospel message isn't just to turn your back on some words, on a piece of paper, on part of Christianity. It is to turn your back on God himself. They are at risk here turning their backs on the God who called them, who intervened in their lives, who grasped them from the claws of judgment in his rescue mission. To reject his gospel is to reject him. You can't have God without his gospel. You're left only with a God of your own making, a God you fashioned in your own or in the world's image. I think of a camp leader I worked with once, and she struggled that we spoke with the young people about the need to respond to the gospel, the need to gently, lovingly, pastorally, appropriately call the young people in our care to repent and believe, to take up their crosses and follow Jesus. Can't we just have more Jesus, she said. Can't we just give them more Jesus, tell them more of God's love and leave it there? You can't have Jesus without what he said. You can't have God if you won't have his gospel message. And I think we understand that deep down. I mean, which of us wouldn't be affronted if we spent many hours choosing the right present for our our dear loved one, having saved up for months to be able to afford it. And then we presented it to them and they refused to accept it. They wouldn't even take it out of our hands. I think we'd feel affronted and hurt. So let's not think that we can reject the gift without rejecting the giver. Because the gospel isn't just a message, a set of words, a a take it or leave it. Sorry, it is a take it or leave it offer. You can't get rid of the gospel and keep God. 
to abandon what he says and what he's done is an act of desertion. It's to change teams and join the other side. Last night, um, Charlotte and I finished an excellent short drama series on uh, BBC iPlayer called Best Interests. I'd recommend it. It's a fictional story, and it's tragic. It's um, the story of a battle between a hospital and a family about whether their disabled teenage daughter's life support machine should be turned off. I don't want to give too much away in case you watch it, but um, let me just say the parents don't always see eye to eye. And at one point, the dad, understandably struggling to cope with the situation, moves out of the family home and goes to live with his brother. And there's one awful scene in which uh, their other daughter goes round to see him and he just gives excuse after excuse, trying to explain why he left, why he hasn't done anything wrong. And she just looks him in the eye and says, no, you've abandoned us. You've walked out on us in our hardest hour. To abandon the gospel message is an act of desertion. It's to walk out on God. Nothing more and nothing less. It's interesting what Paul doesn't really say much of in these verses. Um, he tells us nothing about the content of this new gospel message. Uh, we'll see more later in the letter. And he tells us almost nothing about who is teaching it. Just a, a almost throwaway phrase in verse 7. Some people. Instead, he seems to focus in on two things. Um, the corruptness of this current message and the catastrophic consequences spreading it the corruptness of this current message well in verse 7 these teachers are causing confusion uh, throwing God's people into confusion troubling them agitating them disturbing them causing them anxiety giving them sleepless nights perhaps where there had been stability calm confidence trust there's now chaos and everything Paul has established is at risk of being knocked down and don't think this is eggs being smashed to make an omelette. No, verse 7, the teachers are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, whether they realize it or not. Their message may come wrapped up like a gift. It may have just the right branding to hit home in a modern society. It may look like a tiny thing, a, a tweak here or there to what everyone believes. But in it, Paul says, the gospel is being turned upside down and having its contents shaken out of it. What's being dealt with here is not things that Christians might disagree on in good conscience, though it may appear that way. What's happening here is that the gospel is being emptied of its content. The current message is corrupt, have nothing to do with it. And second, Paul, Paul talks about the 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 catastrophic consequences of spreading it. The catastrophic consequences of spreading this message. I think we hit um, in verses 8 and 9 the emotional peak of the passage. Uh, look down with me. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Whoever they are, whatever they say, if Paul himself 
were to start speaking another message, if one of Christ's angels were to come and tell them there's another way to be rescued other than Christ given, killed, and raised, let them be under God's curse. Paul says, let them be anathema. And if you, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that what Paul is saying here is a big deal. He's not talking a few choice words that might get bleeped out, a middle finger stuck up at the man. He's talking the divine ban of God as his people entered the promised land. The one-time period in history, the awful declaration that anyone and everything in Canaan that had failed over the hundreds of years that he had waited to respond to his call to repent must be devoted to destruction. This, uh, this curse is not speaking a few choice words, sticking up a middle finger to the man. It's readying yourself to stand before God's judgment throne and be condemned to hell for all of eternity for your refusal to accept God's rescue gift. The consequences of spreading this gospel message could not be more catastrophic And we're left to infer that the consequences for believing it might not be much less severe. So don't desert the true gospel. And then Paul concludes the section in verse 10 by returning to a thought from verse 1. He speaks these hard words not only from God, verse 1, but for God in verse 10. He does not speak in these terms to please and impress people, to be hard-hitting, to win the praise of men and women. He gives this message because he cares about God and his glory and he longs that God's rescue mission is not in vain. It's sobering stuff. And it's a warning we need to hear because we are in danger of doing the same thing. Because we too are tempted to look to other gospel messages. Not that we likely realize that that, that is what they are because they, they come cloaked to us. And when we do that, we don't tend to look back and see what we're doing to you, what we're saying about what Christ has done for us. And hasn't it been God's people's problem throughout all their history that they've always tried to do God and something else? God and self-rule in the Garden of Eden. God and an Egyptian-style calf god at the bottom of Sinai. God and Baal, who brought the rain, apparently, in the time of Elijah. God and the self-satisfaction found in legalism the Pharisees. God and a little bit of money put aside for me, for Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. We're rarely bold enough to choose God or. Instead, we delude ourselves and think we can choose God and. And the and can be a good thing. It often is a thing that God has given us, a good thing he's given to other believers but we take this created thing and we raise it up and we put it on a par with the creator and we worship it. God 
and my qualifications, God and my career, God and a spouse, God and a family, God and the environment, God and social justice. What do we realize? Paul warns us that when we do that, we are deserting God and his gospel. There is no God and. There is only God or. So be warned, says Paul. See the corruptness of the current message. See the catastrophic consequences of spreading it. And go back. Go back to the gospel. Hold tight to the gospel. Cast the truth of the gospel in your arms and do not let it go. Go back to the God whose gospel it is. The one who gave himself to rescue you. And as you define yourself as a believer, as you define what it is to be a Christian, before anyone else, anything else, be a rescued person, a person saved by the God who gave himself for you on the most extraordinary rescue mission. Let that be what you cling to. For any other gospel, there's really no gospel at all. Let's pause, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we repent of how we can um, gloss over passages like this, books like Galatians, because it just doesn't feel relevant. We can't, we can't see ourselves giving up on the gospel. But, but Father, we pray that you'll give us a greater awareness of the pressures of our culture, of the sinfulness of our own hearts. And we thank you for the extraordinary gospel message. We thank you that you have rescued us by giving your son. And we thank you that we do not just have a message, some words. We thank you that in the gospel we have you. We can know you. Help us to cling to it. Give us eyes wide open to the false gospels we may be tempted to believe. Help us, we pray, by your spirit. Amen.